Hello, and welcome to In All of Us Command. I'm Aaron. I'm Kate. And we've got a guest with us today. You want to say hello? Hello. Yes, my name is Eric, and I am the guest of today. <laughs> so we're going to be learning about national anthems. Every week we choose a new country at random. We learn a little bit about the country, and then we listen to their anthem. So after listening, we will rate the anthem on five criteria, and we will see how they all stack up, just in our opinion. And we don't want anyone listening to think that because of the title, we are big fans of O Canada. We don't like it. We like to make fun of it. Uh, we don't expect it to score highly in the rankings at all whenever it gets drawn. Watch, it's going to be our last one. Oh, yeah. I <laughs> hope so. That would be incredible. It's going to be an epic five-part episode. And there's lots of time. Yeah, there's lots of time for you guys to change your mind, Oh, it's going to take, like, roughly four years to get through all of yeah. this, so... Right. You might come around in four years' time. <laughs> I think it's only going to get worse in four years. I mean, we've got a great, great anthem today. I really like the Moldovan anthem, but uh, let's get into the history a bit and just sort of defining what Moldova is because it's a very young country. Uh, so let's start by by asking the classic, do you know anything about Moldova, either of you? No. I think maybe I read about it in a book. Okay. Eric? I, I, I thought I knew about Moldova. <laughs> And I made a fool of myself <laughs> to you when you told me about Moldova. And it was definitely a fictional kingdom. Yeah, that you I were was thinking, thinking of, of Genovia from the Princess Diaries, right? <laughs> yeah. That is correct. I did look yes. it up when you told me that. And it seems there's not one country that Genovia is like directly based off of, but it seems it's mainly based off of Monaco. All right. So I wasn't even close. I, I guess not, unfortunately. I did think maybe there is a chance it was like directly inspired by Moldova. That's why I looked into it for you. Well, but I guess I'll learn a lot today then. I guess so. Moldova is a small landlocked country in Eastern Europe. Uh, it's surrounded on most of three sides by Ukraine. So most of the North, East, and South are, well, all of the East, most of the North and South are surrounded by Ukraine. The rest of it is, is Romania, mainly to the West. Uh, the Southeast corner of the country is very narrowly separated uh, from the Dniester estuary, which is like a bay off of the Black Sea. Uh, and that's a Ukrainian national park that, is between Moldova and the Black Sea there. So there are really big holes in the history of this whole region prior to 1800 or so. The like early history of this whole thing, we are going to take a mad dash through because there is very little of it. Uh, Eric, there are a couple times I might call on your just general superior historical knowledge. Oh, wow. All right. That's, that's, it's very flattering, but I don't know about that. <laughs> this is why we don't pe tell people ahead of time when we're going to put them on the spot. It's true. Okay. <laughs> uh, so we're going to be talking about three main historical regions today, uh, and those are Wallachia, which is basically all part of Romania uh, in the modern day, 
Moldavia, which is not really Moldova. I thought that was just like the old name for it, but actually the historical region of Moldavia is currently split between Romania, Moldova, and Ukraine. Uh, And the third region we're going to be talking about is Bessarabia, which is occasionally part of Moldavia and often not also. It gets separated from Moldavia a lot. Certainly not to be confused with Moldova. No. Well, Bessarabia, (laughs) modern Bessarabia is entirely in Moldova, I believe. So it's it's confusing. (laughs) It's like a Shakespeare play where all the characters are named Antonio and you're just left trying to figure out which one is which. I'm going to try to keep them all straight, but there is probably a couple times where I will refer to Moldavia where really I should be talking about Bessarabia or vice versa and all that. It's going to be it's going to be like one of those old who's on first. Oh, bits. for sure. <laughs> uh it's you got to go back and listen to our Lesotho episode sometime because it's the story of the Basotho people who speak the Sasotho language who settled in Lesotho. <laughs> That's so fun. <laughs> uh, so Moldavia was, at least as far as I could tell, our earliest knowledge of inhabitants there are some Thracian tribes in the first century BCE. And they would form a really short-lived independent state there, probably not called Moldavia at this point. No one really talked about it other than the fact that it briefly existed. Uh, It was, however, an important passage in the third century for a lot of the nomadic tribes that are just on their way to conquer the Roman Empire, basically. Like, we're talking Goths, Huns, Avars, Magyars, Cumans, Tatars. These are... A lot of peoples that are going to be huge political forces in the whole region for like a millennia or more going forward. Uh, anyone who has spent any time playing the game Kingdom Come Deliverance will have built up a very healthy dislike for the human people, fair or otherwise. Uh, they're, they're a huge pain in the ass in that game, and it is set over a millennia after they pass through Moldavia. Um... Around the 10th century, the region briefly comes under the control of a state that was known as Kievan Rus, and it's basically an early precursor state to Ukraine. So we'll get a lot deeper into their history on our Ukraine episode, but this is just to say that they briefly occupied Moldavia. Uh, From about 1200 to 1340, it was ruled by a really interesting tiny state called Galicia Volhynia. Uh, and that is a minor power that basically emerged from the collapse of Kievan Rus. Uh, the count or whatever of Volhynia, a small region of Ukraine, had managed to marry and maneuver his family into an alliance with Galicia, like at the time basically a small Spanish kingdom. And they formed a state that was like a corner of Spain and a little patch of Ukraine, and they just (laughs) traded all the way across the sea. Uh, So that's kind of cool. And they held... That kind of sounds like, sorry, in like a game of uh, Settlers of Catan. Okay. Where like everyone's trying to keep their kingdoms connected, and then there's that one person who has like the last pick of the territories on the board, so they just (laughs) have to go like opposite sides of the continent. And they somehow make it work. They get all the ports. 
and they trade amongst the, themselves. Anyway, <laughs> that's what it reminds me of. It actually, it's uh, in a game of Crusader Kings, Galicia is always incredibly precarious, their whole like dynastic line. It's very, very easy to marry into that line and take over the whole thing from wh- wherever the hell you are. Uh, hmm. So I thought it was hysterical that someone actually did that in history. <laughs> And whoever Hysterically made, historical. <laughs> and whoever made the game, I guess, did their research? I, I guess. Maybe? Yeah. Or it's Oh, it's, it's, a, it's a painstakingly well-researched Okay, then they game, did their but, research. That's fine. Uh, a lot of people in the region of Moldavia would die during the Mongol invasion of Europe in the 1240s under Ogadai Khan. So Ogadai was Genghis Khan's son mm-hmm. and his first successor. Uh Kublai Khan is not descended from Ogadai by the time, like, I think Ogadai's son was the Khan after him, but then it reverted to Ogadai's brother's line after that, which would end up leading to Kublai Khan, the, the other super famous one. Right. Uh, so in the 1400s, Moldavia would come under the control of the Ottoman Empire, Uh, Moldavian and Kievan nobles managed to maintain political control over the region against like considerable opposition from a lot of groups until about the mid 1500s, where they finally had to release the administration of the region to Ottoman Turks. The current capital city of Moldova is Chisinau, I believe it's pronounced, and it would first be built during the early 1400s. So during this early Ottoman period, the Russo-Turkish War would would be fought from 1806 to 1812. Well, a Russo-Turkish War, <laughs> let's let's start there, would be fought from 1806 to 1812. And that would end in the Bucharest Peace Treaty of 1812. And that in that uh, treaty, the region of Bessarabia would be ceded from the Ottoman Empire to the Russian Empire. There was another Russo-Turkish war from 1828 to 1829. Russia would ultimately make further inroads during this war on the Moldavian land. They would also force the Ottoman Empire to recognize the autonomy of Moldavia and Wallachia, like future Romania, basically, under Russian tutelage. So Russia basically goes to the Ottoman Empire centered in modern Turkey and says, like, we're going to teach these regions how to be a country, kind of. Like, violently tell them that. That's one way to do it, I guess. Uh, The Treaty of Paris would end up being signed in 1856, and this was signed after the Crimean War between Russia on one side fighting against France, Great Britain, Turkey, and Sardinia, which is a historical Italian kingdom. I was going to say, what's Sardinia? Uh, Russia was forced in this treaty, I mean, among other things, but the Russia was forced, the things that are relevant to us today, to release Bessarabia back to the Ottoman, em- uh, back to the Ottoman Empire and recognize both Moldavia and Wallachia as autonomous states under the suzerainty, I think is how it's pronounced, of the Ottoman Empire. And this is really the one thing I had in mind to ask you about. Do you 
understand suzerainty at all, Eric? I have no clue what that is. No clue. Okay. (laughs) None. Cool. (laughs) Me neither. Tell us. I've got a super basic rundown. I thought thought maybe it had come up in in Eric's wanderings, but I was incorrect. Uh, Basically, what suzerainty means is that a tributary state gets to control everything but foreign policy. So if the Ottoman Empire is suzerain to uh, Moldavia then Moldavia gets to control everything except foreign policy. If the Ottoman Empire goes to war, Moldavia goes to war. The Ottoman Empire does all that sort of stuff. Um, Yet another Russo-Turkish war in 1877 would lead to the Treaty of Berlin in 1878. Uh, This is not to be confused with one of the many other treaties of Berlin throughout (laughs) history. I tried to Google... Treaty of Berlin and got like a bunch of other treaties and had to add the year to find this one. Uh, But basically it led to Russia restoring back the land they had gained in the second war we talked about. Uh, But Bessarabia was restored to the Russian Empire. (laughs) We all kind of keeping track. Kind of. It's a lying if I said yes. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) it's it's the classic story where a bunch of nations that have no historical dealings with Moldavia and Wallachia are making all the decisions for them. I think this has happened to every country we've talked about. We haven't covered like a superpower. No, so everyone's just like the ones getting kicked. Right, everyone's the pawn. Yeah. yeah, we did a whole like tour of Central Africa, and it was, well, maybe <laughs> maybe West more than yeah, West Africa. It was it was pretty dark. Yeah, right. We covered just by luck a bunch of countries right in the same region. Um, in eighteen eighty one, Moldavia, as it stood at the time, and Wallachia would unite to form the Kingdom of Romania, and that is not, like, the current Romania has not existed in an unbroken line since this. This is a a different thing. Uh, But the first king of the Kingdom of Romania is King Carol I. Uh, And a movement for Moldavian nationalism would begin stirring probably about 20 years into his reign, but it would really start flourishing during the first Russian Revolution in 1905. Uh, Not to be confused with the more famous uh, February Revolution in 1917, which we will also get to in a minute. Uh, Chisinau's large Jewish population would ultimately suffer during a series of what are known as pogroms, uh, concluding around the beginning of the re- the revolution. And what is not clear to me is why there's a specific word for pogroms. Basically, they were violent anti-Semitic riots in Russia specifically. But I don't know why Russia has, like, a specific word for violent anti-Semitic riots that everyone still uses when they talk about them. I, and do they only use that specific word when they talk about it in a historical context? I think or so. Is it, Are there okay. ongoing pogroms? I don't. That was good, not yeah. that I'm aware of. I didn't look that deep into okay. like 
the full history of pogroms. I was just looking at a definition of it. Uh, so I guess I could have done more of my due diligence finding out. Maybe I'll look into that a little bit during the break. It's probably historical based on what yeah. you said, but, you know, be interesting to know anyways. Yeah. So now we're rolling into World War One. Woohoo. Uh, and the central powers, which are like the Germany and Austria-Hungary side of the war, have promised to restore the region of Bessarabia to the kingdom of Romania if they fight with the central powers in the war. If we win, we'll get it back from the Ottoman Empire. We'll give it to you. Uh, as a counteroffer, the Allied powers offer Transylvania and Bukovina. So Transylvania is fully within modern-day Romania. And Bukovina is largely split between Romania and Ukraine. Uh, Romania would ultimately take the Allied offer and fight mostly beside the Russian Empire. So this is really when a movement for Moldavian independence would start to spring up for real alongside the Russian Revolution in 17. Uh, in April, the National Moldavian Committee would make demands for autonomy from Romania. In November, there was uh, a group formed called the Sfatul Tari, which I believe is just Romanian for National Council, uh, but they're referred to in a lot of the historical documents as just the Sfat. Uh, they're basically a Bessarabian National Council. Uh, so they would form in November, and by December, they would declare Bessarabia as an anonymous constituent of the Russian Federation. And the Federation of Russian Republics was not a thing I was really familiar with, but, like, this is still a thing. I didn't are, know that. Are you aware of this, Eric? All the, revol or all the revolutions, <laughs> all the republics that are federated under Russia? No, I'm 0 for 2. 0 for 2. <laughs> this one either. <laughs> so the, the most populated, I, I looked into it a bit, the most populated are the republics of... Bashkortostan and Tartarstan, both at 4.1 million uh, population-wise. The largest by landmass is the shockingly huge Sokka Republic at a ridiculous 3.1 million square kilometers. Like, wow. literally the only independent countries in the world larger than the Sokka Republic are Russia itself, Canada... U.S., China, Brazil, Australia, and, like, barely India. So, hold on. Help me with something for a sec. So, this, this isn't, like, this isn't, like, Canadian provinces, but Russian. This is different? These are separate countries? These are, yeah. These are, I think, sort of the closest thing in the modern world to, like, a suzerain relationship, like we were okay. talking about earlier. Weird. I didn't know about that. Yeah. Kind of like a commonwealth situation kind of like yeah loosely affiliated with russia but not really russia and they're they're listed in the same list as i think what would be more of the equivalent to canadian provinces or u.s states or something but uh maybe it's like a provinces v territories sort of idea right okay gotcha uh wow. but yeah i thought it was crazy that there was a. Uh, sort of an autonomous republic within Russia that's bigger than almost every country on like, Earth. This podcast just very quickly becomes like all the stuff they didn't teach us at school, 
which I know they can't teach you everything, but some of the stuff I'm like, man, I wish I'd known that. <laughs> and this is one of those things. Yeah, I spent four years studying history at school and I didn't know any of this. I mean, Moldova <laughs> is is a pretty minor country on like the global stage, at least. But uh, there's some interesting stuff here. But ultimately, after some conflicts with Russia, the Sfat would ag- again declare Bessarabia to be an independent Moldavian republic, but this time without being tied to Russia. Uh, the Moldavian Democratic Republic, as their state was known, was really unable to stand on its own. So after, I think, about a year, they would join with the Kingdom of Romania. So reuniting like Bessarabia and Moldavia that have been sometimes politically aligned and sometimes not throughout history. Is it still World War One? Um, no. Okay. No, I think we're into the 20s now. Okay. Uh, the USSR would ultimately never recognize Romania's claim on the region, so they would form the Moldavian Autonomous Socialist, uh, Soviet Socialist Republic, which, because it's such a mouthful, I'm just going to call it the Moldavian SSR from here on out. Uh, and that was in what was at the time Ukrainian territory. I think now part of what was the Moldavian SSR, the original one in 24, because there's going to be another one in 1940. Uh, What was the original Moldavian SSR is now partly Ukrainian territory and partly what is known as Transnistria. And we're going to talk about that a bit more as we get into the modern age. Uh, So in 1930 now, uh, King Carol II would return from exile and I highly recommend doing a bit of looking into King Carol II, just a hilarious globe-trotting womanizer king. <laughs> he had renounced his rights to succession, I think, in the early twenties, because he had decided he wanted to marry a woman whose station was so low that he had to get a special kind of marriage, where basically, like, their kids couldn't inherit regardless of the fact that they were legitimate children of their marriage that kind of sucks uh wow yeah (laughs) it it blows uh i don't know if they got divorced or what happened with that woman but ultimately he would carry on a long like decades long affair with a woman that uh encyclopedia britannica unfortunately refers to as a jewish adventuress oh yeah. Okay. What does that mean? <laughs> as far as I can tell, it mostly means she fucked the king of Moldova and globetrotted a bunch with him for 20 years. I mean, there are worse things, but don't call people. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the only reason I bring up King Carol now is because he would see the Moldavian movement for nationalism happening, and he started to sort of gerrymander the region, making new provinces and trying to break up some historical unity around the whole region of Moldavia and Bessarabia. Mm. Um, He would eventually be forced to cede the throne of Romania and would finally marry the uh, adventurous we talked about (laughs) earlier uh, about six years before his death, I believe. 
1940, the Soviet Union demanded that Bessarabia be returned under their control from Romania. Romania agreed because what the fuck are they going to say? <laughs> Uh, Romania ended up entering the war on the side of the Axis powers, and they would occupy the Moldavian province of Transnistria that we talked about earlier. Uh, the Romanian government would ultimately set up a number of concentration camps in the region of Transnistria, uh, most notably the Bogdanovka camp, as it was known. Uh, and that camp alone would kill over 40,000 Jewish prisoners. Jesus. So Ugh. Moldova has previously been home to a very large Jewish popula population, particularly in Chisinau, but that would significantly shrink after World War II uh, between the Holocaust and just people fleeing the region. Uh, Bessarabia is regained by the USSR in 1944, and would be reintegrated into the Soviet Union as the Moldavian SSR. So there is a huge agricultural boom throughout the whole region during the Moldavian SSR period. At one point in the 1970s, it ranked sixth in food produ production among all Soviet republics, despite being the smallest one, mm -hmm. holding 0.2% of the total land in the republic. Wow. Good for them. Right? That's that's a pretty insane stat. Yeah. That's impressive. Uh, so they were like the breadbasket of the Soviet Union, essentially. So even though it was a prosperous time for Moldova under Soviet uh, stewardship, I guess, the nationalist feelings still grew throughout the 1980s, especially as the Soviet Union is weakening. Uh, the Republic of Moldova would announce its sovereignty in June of 1990 and its independence from the Soviet Union on August uh, 27th of 1991. I believe the Soviet Union ultimately fell in December of 91. So just a couple months later. Uh, Gagazia and Transnistria would make their own claims for independence from Moldova when they declared from the Soviet Republic. Uh, Gagazia would ultimately end up accepting a new constitution in 1994 that granted them autonomy within Moldova. Transnistria was granted the same autonomy in that constitution. However, they did not accept it. So Transnistria continues to this day to bid for independence. Uh, we will eventually have a Transnistria episode. They are only recognized by three other regions in a similar situation, two of which are within Georgia and one of which is in Azerbaijan. Uh, and those are Abkhazia, Artsakh, and South Ossetia. I've not heard of those places. Uh, fun side fact, uh, North Ossetia is actually one of the Russian republics that we talked oh. about earlier. I was going to ask, are any of these, yeah, Russian republics, uh, but... Yeah, yeah North Ossetia. So yeah. the those four, like Transnistria, Transnistria and the three I just mentioned, are the only places that recognize each other's right to exist. In the UN? No? No. Okay. Uh, the era of independent Moldova, though, has been marked by conflicts and disagreement over the nature of sort of a separate Moldovan national identity versus the Romanian national identity. Uh, the government in the early independent period seems to have really pushed for uh, 
their language as being Moldovan and the people being Moldovan. Uh, but I don't think p- the people were necessarily as on board. I think there were a lot of sort of Romanian loyalists that resisted these changes. Uh, a law would be passed in 2003 that asserted that Moldovan and Romanian were two correct names for the same language. Uh, They have had something of an education crisis over the past 200 years or so also. They kept getting handed back and forth from, like, Romania to Turkey to Russia to Romania to Turkey to... And these different languages keep getting pushed on them as, like, a state language. Mm -hmm. So it's only... I don't know, since the 40s or so. I think even during the Soviet Union, there was Russian being pushed on them as a state language. So there's been a lot of confusion over, like, how to properly measure the literacy rate in Moldova. Yeah. Because everyone's been educated in different languages. Right. And maybe they, like, switched halfway through your schooling or something. And And Yeah, that's not great. Compounding that problem is... Moldova had made moves towards joining the EU in 2005 or so, but Romania, as far as I can tell, still kind of sees it as their property, Moldova. Uh, And they kind of started offering Romanian passports to any Moldovans who wanted them or any Moldovans who had Romanian heritage, which was virtually all of them. them. (laughs) Wow. Uh, And many Moldovans started taking this not just to live in Romania, but to use it as passage to the rest of Europe because a Romanian passage gets you into the EU. I mean, I would do it if I lived there. It would make sense. Not only do they have this complicated history with their own education system, but educated Moldovans are just leaving the country for wherever the fuck. Right. That's fascinating. Yeah. And that brings us up to the end of my history section. It sounds, that last bit, like, it, it reminds me a little bit of our own, like, Canadian identity crisis. Totally. That we we don't know. I mean, most people speak English, but there's all that, you know, like, we should learn French, and everybody should learn say, French. I was going to say, there's some people in Canada who would take issue with you going, yeah, we mostly speak English. I know. And I, I said it, and I was like, oh, no. Okay. Um, it, it just, it seems, it's not the same, obviously, because there are not a lot of countries like no Canada is actually ours but it's a similar like just confusion what are we doing why are we doing it who are we help do you guys have any questions about the history that I can look into uh, after we do the fun facts I do not really no all right I mean the the gist of what yeah I gathered from their history is that they are in a strategic place Absolutely. People want them. They're kind of on that hinterland between Europe and Asia. Exactly. They're going to be very valuable. And so they've kind of been passed around a million times like a hot potato. And the the education crisis is just one of the consequences of that, I guess. But yeah, no, I think, um, I think... I don't have any questions. This is fascinating. I'm interested in the, in the Russian republics, but I feel that's not a question for right now. Yeah, we'll get into that more in Russia for yeah. sure. Um, It'll I, be addressed later. I don't think the Russian republics are at the moment on our list. I think we're only covering places that at least claim to be independent. I think so too. 
so let's get into some fun facts, though. I'm so We've excited got... for the fun facts. You've been hyping it up so much oh, all day. Oh, there's so many fun people. <laughs> um, there's, like, a whole string of just cool, fun, glamorous, like, globetrotting, sexy people that come out <laughs> of uh, Moldova, including King Carol II and his adventurous bride. Uh, but uh, we're going to start with some of the less, like, globetrotting, sexy people. Uh, <laughs> This one I thought was really fascinating. A guy named George de Bothazat was a uh, Bessarabia born who had moved to America. He was a pioneer of helicopter flight and he created one of the first successful quad rotor helicopters. So if you picture like what every drone is, that quadcopter design, right. yeah. he designed not the first one, but like I think the third successful quad rotor helicopter. He worked with his assistant, Ivan Jerome, and their machine was known as the Jerome de Bothazat Flying Octopus. Ha! Huh, I love that. Uh, I'll, Very cool. I'll definitely link to photos in the show notes because it's really cool to look at. Yeah, I was going to say, that's a question. I want to see a picture of the Flying Octopus. <laughs> what I thought was really sick about the Flying Octopus is they actually didn't prototype it at all. <laughs> they just sort of built it for the military and it worked. <laughs> but uh, it was insanely difficult to fly. It was unresponsive to controls and it was really vulnerable to changes of wind. So ultimately, <laughs> the project got canceled in two years or so. Uh, there's a guy named Radu Albut, and he was the first Moldovan to win singles and doubles titles. I think either, but also he's won both. Uh at the ATP, which is the Association of Tennis Professionals, sort of the the FIFA of tennis. Mm. Uh, his highest world rank as of yet was in 2019, where he was ranked as the 46th best men's tennis player in the world. Uh, wow. I thought it was fun that Marvel actually has a character from old Moldavia who appeared in one single issue of The Tomb of Dracula, uh, he is killed by Dracula in, in the issue. His name is Gorna Storsky. That's fantastic. Um, so this woman is the one I've really been hyping up to. Yeah. Kate. Uh, I was, I was saying earlier, I really think this was you if you had grown up in like <laughs> a hardened Eastern European <laughs> Soviet state thing. I'm so excited <laughs> to know what this is. Uh, so she would, this woman, it, her name is Daria Harjevshi, and she would become head of the Chisinau Public Library in 1884 at the age of 22. Jesus. It was at the time the only state-operated library in all of Moldavia. Uh, she would introduce new, like, modern cataloging programs and community outreach, outreach programs to the library, eventually forming a librarian's congress in Chisinau which would culminate in her making a keynote speech at the Congress of Librarians in Russia in St. Petersburg. She also founded the Chisinau Amateur Society of Drama. Uh, she would run the Chisinau Public Library for over 40 years, from 1884 to 1931. She opened a children's library, the first in Moldova, a regular library publication, and a department of rare texts from old Bessarabia dating back to the 15th century at least. The library wow. branch that she ran is now the National Library of Moldova. Okay, that's so cool. Because, like, these days at least, like, 
most librarians pick one of those things. Like you sort of specialize, you do yeah. children's or you do rare books or you do community right. outreach. Most people don't do every single bloody one of them. Yeah, she just single-handedly clawed the Moldovan library herself. system into the modern age. And it's like, it's not to say you can't change over the course of your career, but like, that's incredible. Yeah, like, I don't know if, you know, Dewey Decimal is what they're using in Russia, but like, Whatever the equivalent is, at least she fully brought it to the country I, and popularized it. I would love to know what they were using. I don't know if it was Dewey, though. That's very American. Yeah, I figured probably it's not Dewey, but yeah. she she brought over like the new modern cataloging methods. That's incredible. Is there a book about this woman that I can read? Honestly, because I knew you'd be so psyched <laughs> about what she gets into, um, the... Like, this is every last tidbit I could find about her. I okay. translated every last bit of Romanian I could find on the internet about this woman. Okay, that's fair. I'm maybe still going to do some digging by myself after. We're not anywhere. Translated, Go ahead. Trans, translated every last bit of Romanian slash Moldovan because it is technically the same language. The same language. <laughs> uh, next up in our insane string of famous people we've got lewis milestone uh born in chisinau he would eventually move to america and become a multi-oscar winning director in the 1920s he would win for two arabian nights in 1927 uh i believe one of only like two or three wins for best comedy direction before the award was canceled hmm. uh and he hmm. would win ag again in 1930 as well as winning Best Picture for All Quiet on the Western Front. Oh, I saw that. A fantastic movie. Uh, he would be cool. nominated twice more for The Front Page in 1931, I believe, and Of Mice and Men, I think a bunch later. Uh, he also directed the original Rat Pack, Ocean's Eleven, in 1960. Oh, wow, cool. Yeah, with like Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin. Yeah. I think Cesar Romero was in it. Uh, next up, we've got Mona May Karth, and this is, uh, one of our, our back-to-back -back fun, sexy, globetrotting <laughs> people. Uh, Mona May Karth was born in Bessarabia, and, uh, when she was a child, she would flee with her family and would actually become an early Zionist settler in Palestine. Oh! Uh, jumping back to my last episode, uh, before she would eventually become a U.S. citizen, where she would go on to win seven U.S. titles in chess. She was married to some dude, but she carried on a highly public affair with Edward Lasker, another U.S. chess star who had five national titles of his own. She also, like, invested in stocks really good and became independently wealthy and bought a shitload of modern art and died in a huge apartment in New York, I think. She's awesome as fuck. Good I love her. this woman. <laughs> Yeah, killing it. That's amazing. <laughs> uh, next up is a woman whose father was from Bessarabia, and that is Diane von Furstenberg. She is a fashion designer from Belgium who would marry Prince Egon von Furstenberg. Uh, they would be married from 1972 to 1983, but she has continued to use his name. I believe her fashion career really took off while they were married. It's an excellent last name. 
It is, yeah. Furstenberg. Von Furstenberg. Yeah, How do you beat that? Excellent. That's excellent. Yeah. <laughs> so they were the von Furstenbergs were royalty in the German region of Swabia, which is you know no longer a kingdom in itself, but uh, her children and grandchildren still go by prince and princess and. Uh, Diane von Furstenberg, though, I guess is particularly known for her work with wrap dresses. I guess her she has the reputation as like the woman who invented wrap dresses. But from what I could see, it's more accurately the woman who like popularized wrap dresses, made sure. them mainstream. It's hard with fashion mm. anyways to pin down exactly who invented something. Totally. And something as right. as broad as like yeah. a wrap dress. Yeah. One thing kind of moves to the other thing, and they're so closely related. Exactly, or like someone was wearing it 30 yeah. years ago, but no one else cared, you know. Right. <laughs> but I th- I think it would be safe to say, at least, that Diane von Furstenberg is sort of the, the mother of the modern Western rap dress. That's very cool. Uh, next up, less cool, less sexy, we got a guy named Sam Zamuri, uh, known widely during his time as Sam the Banana Man. An adorable nickname for a horrible I thought man. you said less sexy. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's just get into a bit of the history of Sam Zamuri. He was born to Bessarabian parents and would ultimately settle... Oop, that was me dropping my phone. Don't worry about it. Would ultimately settle in Alabama, where he started the Cayamel Fruit Company. Uh, he would later become president of the United Fruit Company. These companies would merge a little bit after I think he had left uh, to create what we now know as Chiquita. Uh, like wow. the, the pretty lady on the on the banana sticker. But uh if you look at his career section on Wikipedia, it's fucking hilarious. It's two out of the five section headings are about coups that he orchestrated to sell more bananas. I was say, these, these fruit companies oh, they're have dark, horrible, dark horrible, horrible fucking oh people. I didn't know God. this until fairly recently, and it, it blew my mind. The other thing that blew my mind is nut milks, but that's a story for another day. <laughs> Carry on. Mm. Yeah, no, his career thing, it's like... Career beginnings, Honduran coup, first retirement, <laughs> United Fruit Company, Guatemalan coup. Because you got to retire in between those coups or else you get burnt that's out. That's like, a, yeah, that's a natural career progression, I think, <laughs> uh, that line of work. So, yeah, just a horrible dude who caused untold horror to sell bananas. Uh, We'll definitely get more into the history of all that in our episodes on Honduras and Guatemala, among others. Surely, yes. Uh, Next up, we've got Rom Emanuel, whose grandfather was a Moldovan Jew who fled Bessarabia in the early 1930s. Rom Emanuel uh, was mayor of Chicago from 2011 to 2019 and chief of staff for the Obama administration from 2009 to 2010. Wow. Uh, oh, cool. Something I thought about his grandfather, the like his Moldovan grandfather's history, that I thought was really fascinating, is his original name was Auerbach, not Emmanuel, like surname. His, his brother's name uh, was Emmanuel Auerbach, and soon after they had arrived in Jerusalem after fleeing Bessarabia, uh, Emmanuel was killed in a conflict with the Arabs. Uh, so the Rom's grandfather, I didn't write down his first name for some dumbass reason. <laughs> Rom's grandfather would adopt Emmanuel as 
their last name in honor of his oh. brother. Hmm. That's not something you hear about much. Yeah. People taking other people's first names as last names. I think it's, it's cool, something though, you like see it. more in like diaspora communities. Yeah. These these groups of people that have been sort of flung across the globe will take new names, I think, more commonly than other people. Right. I like it. Yeah. Uh, next up, so many crazy connections here. A man named Sam Samuel Bronfman was born in Bessarabia and would ultimately move to Canada where he would start his fortune by forming Distillers Corporation Limited. I don't know if he would form another company or if Distillers Corporation changed their names, but ultimately he would run Seagram's, a colossal distilling conglomerate yeah. in Canada. Huge. Yeah, the Bronfmans are, to this day, one of the richest families in Canada. And, uh, Kate, I know you got really deep into this particular topic a while back with the, the shows and the podcasts and everything. Sarah and Claire Bronfman, heiresses to the Bronf- Bronfman family, were founding members of the Nexium Sex okay, Cult with I Keith knew, Raniere. I knew I knew the name, and I'm like, I think that's mm. a Nexium thing, but then I thought it can't be, and now you're telling me, and I'm feeling actually not as stupid as yeah, I thought before. Their grandfather is from Bessarabia. Wow. Who, and is the one who started that whole fortune. Huh. That's really cool. Uh, last but certainly not least on our insane string of famous people. Kate, you're probably not going to know this one. Eric, I think you definitely will. Uh, Ozone were a Moldovan boy band that is best known for their 2003 song Drago Sta Dinte, better known perhaps by the name of the meme that gave it international fame, the Numa Numa song. Oh, of course. Right? <laughs> <laughs> That's these guys? Yeah. Ozone? Ozone. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Drago Stadente would ultimately sell over 12 million copies worldwide and would reach number one in 27 countries. Wow. Please tell me that Numa Numa is the national anthem. Unfortunately, <laughs> no, it is not. <laughs> oh. But yeah, it w- that is like easily the biggest song to ever come out of Moldova. The the meme, Kate. In case uh, I don't know it, you don't know it. I, I figured probably I'm, you you were online much later than the rest of us, which is to say, barely. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's like a a, a funny. Euro pop song by this Moldovan boy band, but the meme was this like vlogger who did a silly dance to it. Okay, uh, he's like lip syncing and dancing. It was like one of the probably one of the first like viral. Yeah, videos it was. I it was remember. a really early like definitely it was before the word meme at least was commonly used. It was a meme. Right. What year about? Oh boy, like oh. two thousand six maybe. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, two five yeah. six yeah. around there. Uh, so that's the end of our famous people. I did want to save the Numa Numa song for last. Uh, we'll get into just a couple of the national symbols and a couple little tidbits of fun stuff. Uh, the Moldovan flag is a variant on the Romanian flag. So it's left to right, blue, yellow, red stripes, uh, but with the Moldovan coat of arms in the center in the yellow stripe. The coat of arms features an eagle uh, bearing a shield with the head of an aurochs on it. Uh, the aurochs is the national animal. They are an extinct... No way! Yeah. <laughs> 
That's great. Those are those weird looking ones, right? Yeah, they're an extinct yeah. species of like large horned cattle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That I've yes. seen pictures of those. Enormous. Yeah. <laughs> they're cool as hell. They inhabited Asia, like Eastern Europe and North Africa. Huh. Uh, so I don't know how official that is, but at least popularly, the aurochs is their national animal. Uh, Moldova is at least uh, at the time of the article I looked at the 20th largest wine producer in the world and home to the world's largest wine cellar, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, <laughs> with roughly two million bottles housed there at an average value of nearly 500 euros per bottle. Whoa. Wow. Uh, it's also home to the world's largest bottle shaped building the 28-meter-tall Museum of Strong Drinks in Tirnaka Village. <laughs> okay, I want to go there. It. I'm going to link to some pictures <laughs> in the show notes. This museum looks fucking great. The The bottle shop is ridiculous. I'm sure. Is it like the Badashu Museum, but for drinks? Yeah, cool. it looks it looks incredible. <laughs> I would love to go to this museum someday. Yeah, that sounds great. And I'm sure it's I'm sure it's just like a translation thing, but I love how it's the Museum of Strong. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Not necessarily alcoholic drinks, strong yeah. ones. <laughs> I I think to be like this is not a museum of wine and beer. This is a museum of liquor. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we take it seriously here at the museum. Yeah. Uh, despite the incredible museum I've just described to you, however, Moldova is the least visited country in Europe. Oh, that's too bad. I was hoping people would go just for the museum. Yeah. So we will take a quick break now and we will listen to uh, three different versions of the anthem. We will come back to talk about the history of it and do our rankings. This anthem is called Limba Noastra, or Our Language. Limba noastră-i graiul pâinii Când de vânt se mișcă vara În rostirea ei bătrânii cu sudori Sfinții tau țara Limba noastră-i frunză So we have just taken a listen to Limba Noastra, or Our Language. Uh, before we get into the history of this anthem, we're going to talk really quickly about the Moldovan food we made. Uh, we had gotten a little bit lazy over the past <laughs> few weeks. We've done a couple order-in episodes, and we decided to go all out this week, and it was not completely a success but it was not completely a failure either and you took like a big risk we yeah. we cook usually like not safe exactly but accessible foods stews yeah soup a lot of that kind of thing you went like 
110% on this one. So I made I made kotsunashi, which is a Moldovan form of pierogies, basically. And I just, like, I didn't mash the potatoes thin enough. I didn't roll the dough thin enough. I think if I had a couple attempts to make kotsunashi, I could make something really tasty. But, uh the ones I made were not that great. I, I don't say that to take away from the food itself because I'm sure it is delicious. I thought though the flavor was still very good. And as I was kind of saying when we were eating them was that like, it's the kind of thing that like you go to your grandma's house so she can make it for you perfectly. It's, yeah. It's you the know? kind of thing you want to make in huge batches. Yeah. For sure. And you need the tutorial from the 85 year old who's been doing it for yes. decades. <laughs> and since we don't yes. have that right here, right now, I think you did a great job with what you had. And I agree that on repeat attempts, it would be even better. Yeah. So let's get into the history of the anthem a bit. Then uh, the lyrics are taken from a poem by a Bessarabian poet by the name of Alexei Matevici. Uh, he lived from 1980 or sorry 1888 to 1917 uh, before dying of typhus at the age of 29. He had written the lyrics to the anthem a month before his death, or the poem that would become the lyrics to the anthem. Uh, his poems were largely published in the newspaper Bessarabia, which that was the name of the newspaper, uh, where he also published articles on Moldovan. Moldavian, I suppose, uh, history, religion, and folklore. There was actually a monument built in Chisinau in 1933 that honored a number of Bessarabian heroes who had died in August 1917. So one of those was uh, Matevici himself, along with two political leaders, Andre Hodorogea and Simeon Marafa, both of whom had been murdered by Bolshevist leaders the same month that Matevici died from typhus. Uh, this monument, though, would be destroyed in the Soviet, Soviet occupation of Bessarabia in 1940. Uh, the street that leads to the cemetery in Chisinau, where he is buried, has since been renamed in his honor. And there is a museum at his childhood home where there's been a statue of him standing since 1990. I did actually ma manage all of the people who have written anthems and are like listed as poets. I can't find a fucking thing they've written on the internet, but like I did find, I think there's 20 or 25 poems by Matevici. Hmm. You'll need to translate them to English if you don't speak Moldovan slash Romanian. Right. Uh, but you you can do so. I will leave a link to those in the show notes if you want to get a bit more of a sense for who Matevici was as a writer. Uh, the music was written by a guy named Alexandru Cristea, who was a choir director and music professor in Chisinau. He lived from 1890 to 1942. An official arrangement would be written by a guy named Valentin Dinga. Uh, I couldn't actually find any English language references to Dinga. The only way I found out he was involved at all was by translating the law that made this song the anthem. Mm -hmm. That was uh, the first mention I found, and I managed to track down some articles I could translate about Dinga. Uh, he was a Moldovan composer who lived from 1951 to 2014, uh, when he ultimately died of gout, uh, friends noted in 
obituaries that he loved to joke about gout being the disease of kings as he had fought with it for years. Uh, He worked primarily in jazz. A lot of the things I could find about Dinga seem to have been written by people who know him, and they talk about him in the warmest, highest, most loving terms. As far as I can tell, Dinga was... Sort of a rock star as far as you can be as a Moldavian Moldavian classical jazz composer. (laughs) Uh, Just a guy who everyone loved and everyone described as like an immense talent. Uh, He was given the title of Master of Arts of the Republic of Moldova in 1991 and named the People's Artist of the Republic of Moldova in 2010. He actually worked for a while as a judge for the qualification stages of Eurovision, which I thought was fun (laughs) as hell. And then just as one last badass move, he wrote the Requiem that was played at his funeral. Cool. I like this guy. Yeah, right. That's the way to go out. (laughs) I wish I'd known him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, As far as I can tell, the anthem was officially adopted in July of 1995. No one's really talking about when it got picked or like even when any of these people wrote the stuff past past Matevici. I couldn't find any reference as to when Cristeo wrote his composition. I couldn't find any reference as to when Dingo wrote his uh, arrangement. It kind of makes sense because they've had sort of a complicated independence. It was not maybe as clearly defined. Certainly. And like, I'm pretty sure that Cristea, well, nearly 100% sure that Cristea would have written the music after Matevici was dead. Mm. And Dinga wasn't even born until after Cristea was dead. It's really interesting. So many countries we look at, it's a competition that they hold at independence. Yeah. Or it's, you know, like the popular writer and the popular musician, you know, each kind of write a thing and come together. But this is an interesting kind of patchwork anthem situation it's got a cool kind of lineage that that's been handed down it took a long time for it to really be like finished Mm -hmm. totally yeah which is cool sort of what 78 years between the lyrics originally being written and it being adopted as the national anthem it's a long time i thought it took me a long time to write songs (laughs) (laughs) do we want to get into our ratings a bit yeah Sure. Did you have anything else you wanted to uh, get into first, Eric? I wanted to just quickly ask. Totally. Because I have my ratings, for the most part, ready to go. And I'm going to assume that this would fall under the X Factor category. Okay. But we listened to three different variations. Mm -hmm. One of them... I will say I liked exceedingly more than the other two. Sure. Should I factor that into my music score? Or should I factor that since I think you know the one I'm referring to? Oh, for sure. Something we've (laughs) talked about a bit with X Factor 2 is just sort of the malleability of the anthem. You know, we've had some anthems that have rap breaks in one version we listen to. Uh, So... I think usually between the two of us, at least, we give X Factor points if the anthem can be worked into something cool, even if not every version necessarily is. Okay. Uh, So you don't need to, like, you can definitely uh, 
give it a lower score if you think the the other two versions are are lacking in X Factor. But uh, I yeah, usually we would give it points just for having the ability to have something like that worked out of it, whereas some anthems don't as much. Gotcha. Okay. So these I lyrics, think... I think, are awesome. Yeah, I was really impressed by the lyrics. There's so much imagery in them. The uh, the whole poem is amazing, but if we're going to look at just these five stanzas that are talked about, that are for the anthem, there's... I love this, a necklace of rare gems that's scattered all over the domain that's that's repeated a couple times. Yeah. It's uh, it's so rich and poetic and not... I don't know. I guess there's a couple parts of it that you could say are, are maybe a little much, but uh, I like it. I, I think the lyrics really work for me. It's not kind of typical anthem language yeah. that we see. I think because it's about the language as opposed to the country. I think it's very cool. I love this part that um, the second stanza overall, but that like awoke from the sleep of death, like the brave heroes, like, whoa, cool. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that I appreciated, like, well, I guess two main things about the lyrics that I loved. First thing, just English translation aside, I just love the way the language sounds, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. So the way it sounds to the music, I, I just loved it. And I was half the time I, I was reading the Romanian slash Moldovan translation. I wasn't even reading the English just because I wanted to learn how you pronounce these words. And I, it was just fascinating. Yeah. Very cool. Just rhythmic, uh, melodic. It's a, language. it's a musical. Yeah. 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 And then the other thing I really appreciated about the lyrics is that there isn't really any mention of any like religion really true yeah there's no god in this and there's god in a lot of really there's i guess our language is more than holy is the closest we get to to god being in this but that could be interpreted i don't know kind of as you like it's not it's like saying the beatles are bigger than jesus almost (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) but yeah i just i thought that that kind of proved the point of the lyrics i guess which is that they're the people, their language transcends transcends all else, right? Yeah, and that's the most important thing. But no, I I thought the lyrics were fantastic. Yeah, you know what? I I was gonna go for a nine, but I'm actually really impressed that there's no God in these lyrics. That might be a first. I uh, I think so, because the typical structure is like we love our country, God loves our country. Yeah, our that's, country is good. Right. That's that's our <laughs> our standard checklist for what happens in an anthem, and really none of that happens here. And no. it's also beautifully said. I think I'm going a hard ten on these lyrics. Yep, that's that's fair. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go nine. I think nine for Kate, Eric. I'm gonna meet in the middle. I'll go nine point five. <laughs> nine point five on the lyrics. The music, I think, is not as strong as the lyrics, but I do think it's got a lot of character to it. It's got a lot of pep, you know. There's a lot of pep. It's a little stiff, maybe. It is maybe a little stiff. I love that third version, though. Yes. Um, third version being the guitar. The guitar version. version yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, I think I listened to the Man of Order. But <laughs> yes, I agree completely. I I love how much he sort of pulls all the jazz out of the melody mm-hmm. for that version, and it really highlights for me the the strengths 
that are present in the music, even in the maybe less exciting, stiffer orchestral versions. Yeah, I think it's definitely something that can be, you know, toyed with. And that's kind of fun. Um, I did find the instrumentals were a little like, we will all stand up straight and do it properly. (laughs) Marching like. I mean, yeah, and I got that that same impression. Marching. Yeah. It was kind of what it made me think of. You know, like it wouldn't look out of place being played to like an Olympic ceremony or something. Yeah, for sure. I do think, though, that that is a angle that's useful to look at like that's sort of the standard way you hear anthems done i think we usually want to have one that is at least a little bit stiff (laughs) right how many anthem i guess we have had a couple anthems that are actually kind of fucking fun some of them how you cut them some of them are some of them are not like sao tome's was fun as hell no matter what you did yeah that one was really good um I think I'm gonna go 7.5 on the music. I do think there's a lot of quality there. It's not totally blowing my hair back, but uh, I I do think it's a really solid piece. Yeah, I'm gonna go 7. 7 for Kate. Eric? I had a 7 as well. 7 for Eric. Let's talk a bit about the background story, which, unfortunately, there's not a lot of background story of the anthem itself, but we did get a bit more color for the people involved in creating it and that's Uh, quite rare like normally it's almost the other way around yeah that's true where there's like a story about how it came to be but the people it's like i don't know he wrote the national anthem and that's all we have so i don't know i was i was decently impressed by the amount of history and the like quality of the backstory yeah mate vici is like a really important poet in the history of bessarabia which i i love when the person who made the anthem actually matters. Yeah. Uh, I love when it's like a poet that the, the whole country cared about and loved his work and like fomented nationalism for independence. And Mate Vici very much fits that mold that we've seen a couple times now. And I love that. Uh, I also just loved everything I read about Valentin Denga and he seems like such a wonderfully lovely person that I want to give it. <laughs> that definitely scores uh, extra points. Yeah, yeah, a point or two just for how excellent he seemed. You need a separate category for like, do you want to get drinks with the composer? Yeah. <laughs> the arranger? Do you want to go on a tour at the Museum of Strong Drinks? Oh, 10 I out most of 10. definitely do. <laughs> Uh, I'm still debating on background story. You guys give yours. Let me let me think about this. Okay, I I was pretty. I felt pretty good about the background story. I think I'm gonna go maybe eight for this. Eight for Kate. Yeah, well, that's fun. It rhymes. Eric, I think I think I'm gonna go with a nine. Nine I thought, on the background story. Yeah, I thought they didn't really take the the easy route in writing this. You know, as you said, it took what seventy eight years. <laughs> yeah, that's true. For the thing to come together. And, you know, you can easily commission some composer to just write an anthem, get someone else to submit a poem. There you go. Boom. Got yourself an anthem. But, you know, they actually dug deep. And then just hearing about how cool these people sound on top of it all. Yeah. That 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 scores high yeah. in my books. Yeah. I think I'm going to go nine on this one, too. Great. Uh, historical significance for this one, I think, again, they're... This one might dethrone Slovenia at long yeah, last. Yeah, it might. It's so original. It is. Uh, 
I love that it's not talking about the same things that every other anthem is, but uh, it's still, I love that it name checks the, the uh, Denister River is a really important, really important landmark of Moldova. Um, just looking here, it seems like the Kadri are a specific forest in Moldova. I just love that it's it's got these specific name checks and it's not about what every other anthem is about. I also appreciate that Wikipedia provided that information for us. Because as I was reading the lyrics, I was like, oh, what's that? And then handily, right there, it was yes. explained to me. That was very nice. <laughs> I, I think I might be going for another 10 on this one. I was going to say 10 as well. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I, I think especially after just hearing the the history and and going through everything it it makes it pretty obvious um just how significant all the the lyrics are like um where's the one line in particular i was looking for yeah just just it, they had a very hard hit history absolutely yeah, yeah this i think this the whole stanza thing gets that point stands across. out stands out particular to me this our our language is more than holy words or homilies of old wept and sung perpetually in the homesteads of that's, our folks yeah that's the one i was looking for yes. it's uh it's pretty powerful stuff yep uh yeah solid tens across the board yep yep x factor I mean, how how can we go low for this one? We can't. We've we'll sound silly if we do. Yeah, we've backed I'm, ourselves into a corner. <laughs> I'm pretty blown away by this anthem. It's uh, it's one of the most original and exciting we've covered on the show, and I think I'm gonna go for a nine point five on the X factor. We I'm gonna dock it that. Point five because it is, as you guys have said, a little stiff, and I think that's a fair criticism, but uh, it checks all the boxes for me. I'm going to agree with you and go with 9.5. Eric, what you got? This this is a 10. A 10. Easily for awesome. me. I think the thing that really uh, changed my perspective, first time you listen to it, yeah, it sounds like this kind of stiff anthem. Then as soon as I heard this guitar, like acoustic guitar rendition of it, completely just flipped it on its head for me and changed my perspective on the entire thing. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I, I, I think after, you know, hearing about the history and learning that they had such a hard history, reading the lyrics and, you know, realizing that there's a lot of sadness kind of throughout their past, but it's still like a, a hopeful uplifting song because they're looking towards the future kind of thing. I felt just that mood was captured perfectly by the the guitar and then the, the way he was singing it. I just Oh, it I really it. is such a gorgeous performance. Yeah. If, uh, if you're going to click on any link in, in the show notes, make it that one. Yes. Yeah, easily a 10 for me. And that's why I had to clarify X Factor versus music because I was like, can I give it both 10 and 10 <laughs> because I like that so much. No limit to the 10s you can get. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's take a quick pause then and total up those scores. Sounds good. So, 
So we have totaled it all up, and we have gotten a whopping score of 90.5 out of 100. Jeez, that's like the highest one. Oh, yes. The current leader before this is uh, Slovenia with 84.5. Wow. So a full six points over the previous leader. So Moldova's the one to beat. It is now. <laughs> Slovenia and had what this, been for a long time. What this surely proves is that Eastern European countries it's true. know how to Maybe. write anthems. They know how to write their anthems. Yeah, we'll have yeah. to see when we get to the rest of them. Now I'm psyched for like every Eastern European country. Yeah, me country. too. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of them too. Oh, for so sure. That's, that's uh, true too. <laughs> something to look forward yeah. to. Especially when you get into that like Russian like ex-Soviet block where no one knows anything about the countries here. Like mm-hmm. I mentioned Azerbaijan in this episode. We'll see. Who knows? We'll see when we see. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got a new winner with a huge margin over the rest of the field. This is going to be tough to beat. Let's uh, take another quick pause and just see who I'm going to be doing next week. In two weeks. All right, and we have rolled our giant 206-sided dice and come up with 73. Let me just look that up. So your next country is Guatemala. Okay. I know not a lot about Guatemala, but I can tell you that I don't think America's going to come out smelling like a uh, rose at the end of that one. I think that's fair. I would agree with you. <laughs> so I think that's our first South American country as well. Um, I did, I did, um, uh, what was it? One of the first ones, Ghana. No, Guyana. Yes, true. Yep, we did do Which Guyana. Is- around there yep so our second south american country and our first in a long while and we will have another guest on my episode for sorry what did you just tell me it was guatemala guatemala uh that will be my good friend daniel so tune in in two weeks for guatemala and tune in next week as kate gives us a little tour of the history of laos food's gonna be good oh i'm excited Thank you so much for joining us this week. It was my pleasure. I had a lot of fun. And I think, um, what'd you say, 206-sided die? I, uh, yes. I'd yep. be happy to come on again and uh, do some other Eastern European country and uh, just pad those Sounds ratings. Great. Just give the Eastern European anthems <laughs> the highest possible scores I can because they are my favorite. <laughs> All right. Well, we will reach out and uh, get you on board for our next Eastern European one. (laughs) Did we get something very wrong? Did we skip an entire part of the story that's worth mentioning? That's very likely, and we'd love to hear the correct version. Please tweet us at IAOUC Podcast or send us an email at in all of us command podcast at gmail.com. We record these episodes a bit in advance, so you may not hear a correction right away, but we are not too big to admit we are wrong and it will be corrected.